Welcome, Cop Prairie. This is week number two of our three-part series called Offbeat Spirituality, The Beatitudes. Last week, we opened by looking at the background of the Beatitudes and the first three of them, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, those sound pretty Jesus-y, right? They're not all totally understandable, but last week I wanted us to look at what they weren't. And what they weren't about was winning. They weren't about flag-waving and pride, whether it's our college, college flags or our national flags or our NASCAR flags or any flags. The only flag that Jesus wants us to raise is a surrender flag. A surrender of our need to control, our need to be right, our need to be famous and proud. He wants us to surrender that and instead embark on an amazing journey into this offbeat spirituality that the Sermon on the Mount and all of his teaching leads us into. So last week's metaphor about the flag was that winning isn't all it's cracked up to be. And in fact, the Beatitudes call us to do so much more than winning, and so much more than simply surrendering. They call us to live to a different drumbeat, a different drummer, and watch how that will change the world. Seriously, if you missed it last week, I really do encourage you to go back and look at sermon number one in the series. I think it has so much to speak to about America's situation today. It's not just that winning's not all it's cracked up to be. That's kind of a truism. But winning now in America. What does that mean? Sometimes it seems like even if even if a political party wants to win, they almost want their adversaries to lose even more. It's like we want our opponents to suffer more than we want our country to blossom. Like a Jewish writer once said about, about their Arab enemies, there won't be peace until they love their children more than they hate us. It's It's Sad to think that sometimes that feels like the case in America today. So let's look at the Beatitudes pretty seriously because there's a lot of Beatituding that ought to be happening. And we as Christians, followers of Jesus who gave us these verses, I think we should be in the lead. So let's look at the other three, four, five, and six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, the second two, five and six, are not very surprising, are they? Merciful people get shown mercy. Well, that's kind of obvious. Kind, forgiving people tend to have people treat them kindly and give them grace. If we show goodness and kindness, if we put the best construction on what our neighbor thinks, says, and does, those are Luther's words, then it's likely that they will do the same to us. So why isn't everybody merciful? Why are so many, even Christian people, so good at holding grudges? So good at, at nursing attitudes and gossiping and, and tearing each other down? Why is that? When it's so obvious that being merciful would be so much more healthy? I think it's because we give up something when we Forgive. We, we give up a narrative, a confidence that we're right and we were wronged by them. It makes us have to think, well, maybe, maybe I wronged them too. 
Maybe, maybe it didn't go down exactly the way I first thought it did. Maybe, maybe I have some repenting to do. And all that's pretty uncomfortable. It's a lot easier just to keep angry, bitter, blaming, or just apathetic. But yet Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. And Jesus ought to know something about mercy, right? Because it was his job coming to earth as our Savior to give that to us. Blessed are the merciful. You know, if you've ever been to a, a, an amusement park, I'm sure all of us have, or nearly all of us, right? So there's the big kid rides and the little kid's ride. When a little kid has to go to the big kid's ride, they have to like pass a, a, a measurement, usually a, a, a character with their hand out like this or something like that. So Laura and I, we grew up in the Chicago suburbs and went to school in Chicago. And when we went out for fun, we went to Marriott's or Six Flags Great America. And they had a deal with Warner Brothers properties so that we had, like this was a great big deal, we had Warner Brothers cartoons all over the park. So Bugs Bunny, Wile E. Coyote, Yosemite Sam. And near each of the big kid rides would be one of these figures with their hand out here that says, BB, you have to be this tall to enjoy this ride. And in a way, it's the same with mercy. You've got to be this much, you've got to be this much merciful to enjoy the kind of life that you get when you're nice, when you're merciful, when you forgive people. And if you refuse to have that much mercy to forgive, you miss out on the fun rides altogether. It's a fact. Merciful people live longer, live more joyfully, and yes, are shown more mercy. And then the other beatitude, they're about blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That shouldn't be a surprise, right? We're like, well, pure hearted people are like the holy ones, right? Of course, they're going to see more of God. But it's not that you need to be perfectly pure. God is saying that if you have, if you have an agenda-free, transparent spirit, if you don't manipulate others, if you don't keep secret agendas or, or nurture illicit or inappropriate relationships, if you honor actual facts and try to solve real-life problems with integrity and without kind of a, a super-partisan agenda, if you do those things, if you live with integrity and transparency, then of course you're closer to God. Because you haven't had all these other guests in your heart that are pushing God out of it. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Well, that is amazing to think about for the world to come, but God has some work for us to do in the world we're in. And the problem with the human heart is there are not that many rooms in here. There's not room for everything. And so I got to be selective about who and what I let in my heart. And it's like, it's like pride. Pride is the one thing that helps, that, that forces every other good guest out. All these beatitude guests we're talking about, they don't stay if pride's in the heart, pridefulness, the, the, the more corrupt and toxic and extreme version of a healthy pride. Right? Have you ever had a college friend come to stay or any friend, maybe it's a, maybe it's a relative, they come to stay, you think they're going to stay for a little while, they end up staying for a long time. Your college buddy says, hey, can I come and stay the weekend? Pretty soon the weekend turns into two. He goes, I swear everything's going to come together. I should be out of here by Wednesday. Before you know it, their weekend stay has been three and a half weeks. And your spouse is about to kill you. Pride is like that. Once pride settles in your heart, pridefulness settles in your heart, nothing else 
can really stay for long. So to keep pride out, to keep the blessings in, you need to invite them one by one. You need to invite the first beatitude, poverty of spirit. You need to invite the simpleness that comes from, from being okay with not having to show you're awesome, with being okay with being a person of modest or even small means instead of bragging about how much you got. You need to, be, you need to make room for mournfulness, for, for an awareness of how people could be suffering and how there's been pain in your life. You need to make room for vulnerability, is maybe a better way to put it. You need to make room for meekness and humility. Those first three Beatitudes are important guests to keep in those few rooms you have in your heart. And then this week, the, the gift of mercy, the gift of pure intentions, all those things belong in our heart and all those things honestly sound pretty Christian, right? They're a little bit offbeat. They're countercultural to what the world usually says and does. But they sound Jesus-y. And we, we, we trust those things. But this, this fourth beatitude, I'd like to spend a few more minutes on that. Because this fourth beatitude, even for a Christian, I think is the one that makes the least sense. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Really? That's not been my experience. I've watched people, who famous people, who hungered and thirsted for justice, and at least on the surface level, they didn't seem like their life worked out all that satisfyingly. They ended up derided and divorced or wounded and, and tortured or arrested or locked up or fired or, or dead. They lived a life that was full of stress, in big decisions, they carried the weight of responsibility for, for a cause or a movement, the, the, weight of, the, the weight of responsibility, the weight of fear, the weight of trying to live a moral life in a messy world with imperfect options, with so many strikes against them. People who really hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness, it doesn't seem like things always play out very well. But scripture tells us that we need to be both. We need to be righteous on the inside and care about justice on the outside. That's what this is. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness within you and justice outside of you, that will leave you satisfied. And that's exactly what's so hard to do. With so many strikes, so many slings and arrows, so much, so much attacking anyone who tries to make the world turn out better. How on earth... How on earth could that ever be seen as satisfying? Every other beatitude that we've looked at so far seems like something we should be able to handle. But hungering and thirsting for justice usually brings a painful response. If you know of... Uh, Martin Luther King, Jr. He was assassinated by a two-bit grifter just after he had started to, to coalesce a movement, just at the peak of when he had, he had spoken in Washington, D.C. He had that amazing I Have a Dream speech. People started to pay attention. Christians finally started to admit maybe black people aren't treated fairly. People who knew it and were trying to suppress that knowledge from getting out, 
we're trying to fight back harder. It's almost like the awkwardness of this polite company conversation meshed with the, with the mean-spiritedness of this vulgar conversation and everything, everybody was ganging up against the forces of justice for people of African-American descent. Right? And Martin Luther King had made so much progress. In fact, the night before he was assassinated, he, he spoke to a crowd and he, he told them, I may not make it to the other side, but Lord knows you will. He hungered and thirsted for justice so much that he made them thirsty for it too, even though he knew he might not live to drink it. He might lose so much on the way. I'd like you to take a listen to the words of a man who hungered and thirsted for justice. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read, of the freedom of press, somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So within 24 hours after that video was shot, he lay dead. Could we say that he lived and died satisfied? And then I think of Abraham Lincoln. 
America's slavery breaker and one of America's, in my opinion, most noble and wise presidents, and certainly one of its humblest, with a vast majority of Southern state Christians and a huge, shocking proportion of congressmen and senators still supportive of slavery, Lincoln said, if slavery is not wrong, then nothing is. And so he he proceeded to, to lead the Civil War. It was difficult. It cut down three quarters of a million Americans when the United States was a much tinier country. But his prodigious leadership got cut short because an insecure man, an actor who, who had a more successful older brother that he could, he could never feel as important as, one of those insecure people who clung to an illusion that made them feel more important, who clung to the illusion of a noble confederacy, this, this system of life where, where grand white people were served by base black people. It was actually a system that was rotting from within. The North knew it. People of intelligence and integrity in the South knew it. But it was an economic system that benefited the whites. And it supported not just the enslavement of the blacks, but it was built on this this bribery, psychological bargain with the poor whites of the South, too. The bargain that will give you a little more opportunity, will give you a little more money, but most of all, will give you the privilege of thinking you're better than the slaves. And that, that gift of racism to the lower class is what's kept fueling, I believe, racism in America ever since. And a lot of insecure people who get developmentally stuck when challenges happen, who don't mature spiritually and emotionally through those very typical human struggles, like John Wilkes Booth, this resentful actor conspiracy lover, two days after Robert E. Lee surrendered the Northern Virginia Army to Ulysses S. Grant, this assassin murdered President Lincoln. This president who embodied a good handful, at least, of these beatitudes with the coward's bullet. Abraham Lincoln had pushed this entire nation, this nation that had been living a lie that all men are created equal, into some never-seen-before sacrifice to keep the United States united and America more righteous and more just. He he moved the concept of liberty and justice from all away from being a, a bitter joke under slavery to being a dream that might possibly someday come true. But would we call Abraham Lincoln satisfied? You know, Lincoln was killed, three quarters of a million Americans died, and many of the white Christians who opposed the war or opposed slavery were persecuted. Were they satisfied? There was this Church of the Brethren lay leader. He was a he was, he was a layman. Um, and, and a farmer, he became a lay preacher and a lay medic so that he could assist the wounded in the battles on both sides. He lived near the, the border in Virginia. So whether they were Union or Confederate troops, he ministered to them and he treated them, which of course made him suspected by both sides. He was arrested and put in jail for two weeks on no charges at all by the Confederates in Virginia because they didn't trust him. And then on his way back from a mission of mercy to northern, to across the lines in the Union, coming back home, he was jumped and murdered by young Confederate sympathizers. Probably like John Wilkes Booth. Could we call Mr. Klein in his idealistic, kind of naive, 
anti-war, anti-slavery mindset, could we call him satisfied? I know we could call him close to God's heart. In the Lord's Prayer that we pray every Sunday as we're doing communion, how does it begin? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. And so what is his will? What is the will that we want done here on earth that is his will up in heaven? The prophet Amos, and I, I love the prophets because Jesus was a prophet. He was considered a prophet at the time. He's considered a prophet. Now he's written as a prophet in scripture. In addition to being the Savior, Messiah, Son of God, he's a prophet. That is a person who speaks truth to power and usually truth to the, to the civil authorities and truth to the religious authorities. That's why he annoyed the scripture. Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. He didn't pick on regular, run-of-the-mill, poor people or betrayed people. They, they did their sins. He knew it. They knew it. He loved them. The people he picked on were the authorities, the civil and the religious. So anyway, I want you to hear this. I'm using the message translation by Eugene Peterson. It's a widely respected. I'm sure you've heard of it. I'm sure you've used it before. This is how it goes. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and your image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you, do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it, and I want fairness rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want, says the Lord. The ESV puts it a little less bitingly, a little bit, a little less like, ugh, in the side. But it's the more famous version. In fact, I think we heard somebody say this just a couple minutes ago, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, it's not that justice Achieving justice makes us satisfied. It's pursuing justice that makes us satisfied. What does the Lord require of you, O man? Right? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, Micah said. So it might be justice. It might be justice at the individual level that that we are longing for. Like after a single sin or a crime against us, maybe a dishonest business person took advantage of us. We were betrayed by a friend. We were physically or God forbid, sexually assaulted. We had an unfair accusation. We got a totally bogus rating on Yelp. We got something stole from our business. They attacked our family. They keyed our car just because. That sort of injustice, that sort of sin, that's the kind of stuff that makes our our heart want to scream. Our human heart always wants justice. And if that's the extent of justice seeking, of justice thirsting that most of us have, then we're not going to get very far in life. We're not going to get very far down the river of an awesome experience and closeness with God. And most of us, we're all pretty privileged. Most of us are pretty privileged and most of us are white. We've got good educations and safe neighborhoods. Life isn't easy all the time, and there's, there's sickness, and there's pain, and there's betrayal, and there's broken marriages. We don't have it easy, but we do have it as close to privilege as we can. But the justice that those men were seeking were for people who had zero access 
to justice or privilege. Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln, they weren't looking for justice for themselves. They were looking for justice for the people who knew it not, who had no access to it, and who they didn't even know. Mandela, King, Lincoln, they didn't want to get even with the people who were mean with them. They didn't want to, they didn't want to pay back the politicians who called them names or the, or the thugs that, that broke the windows in their, their house. It was the call of their heart to do something bigger with their call to justice. Those men, those men that I've named now, they were called to a bigger project. They were called to what Jesus called justice. They were called to it. They were equipped by God for it. And when they acted on it, they were on a mission from God and they were blessed for it. Jesus tells us that a life that cares about justice is the life that's not only blessed, but it's the life that gets to be a blessing. And living with pure motives, fulfilling our duties with pure motives, at least as pure as humanly possible, that's what will keep the promise of America and our witness to Jesus credible in a world that doesn't seem to think the Church of Jesus has much credibility at all. Justice is part of the Hebrew concept shalom. I imagine you've heard of that. It means peace and prosperity. But just like shalom, justice isn't just meant for us and for our household. It's a gift that God gives you, and he challenges you to share it with the rest of the world. Shalom is the peace and the peace and the prosperity of a home that's safe and reasonably secure and, and produces the food you need, has room to be generous to guests, to generous and hospitable to strangers, God gives you this so that you can pass it on and give it to others. So what did Jesus focus on? So this is, this is the second sermon in a series of three on the Beatitudes, the beginning lines of Jesus' most important, most famous sermon, the sermon that even non-religious, non-Christians, even atheists quote, because it's so awesome. And this Sunday, we're halfway through it. And as I close, I want to challenge you to listen back with me at Jesus' first sermon. He went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah was handed to him, and he unrolled it and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bring to proclaim the captives will be released and the blind will see that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant and sat down and all the eyes in the synagogue were looking upon him. And then he spoke. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This was the heart of Jesus. This was his one chance to tell his home congregation who he was. And he told them that he was here because of the Spirit, and he was here to bring good news to the poor, the poor in spirit, the poor in dollars, the captives, the people who did not know justice, or who had paid a price for justice, and for their injustice, and now deserved a second chance, that the oppressed, the enslaved, will all be set free. This is what the heart of Jesus told to his hometown people. And I pray that this is the scripture that will light you up like it lit our Lord Jesus and that you will be fulfilled by this challenge that this fourth beatitude gives us to hunger and to thirst even if we can't have everything we want. We know that following Jesus we have enough of what we need. 
May you trust Jesus. May you trust Jesus enough to grow you enough to be poor in spirit enough, to be mournful enough, to be humble enough, to be merciful enough, and pure in heart enough that you can bless others with your life. And may we thank God that Jesus didn't come to give us what justice said we deserve, but what God's mercy said we were worth instead. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In the name of the promise giver, the slavery breaker, and the new covenant maker, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.